0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: There are some good things about social media, as in, you know, sometimes the power of social media can be harnessed to do good things. It can be used to solve mysteries or find lost people, to rally people to a great cause, help them when they need it. And then there's the not-so-great side, where social media, and in particular it seems TikTok, can result in a troubling influence on groups, ending up in some real antisocial behavior. So what exactly are we talking about here? Well, it's something the BBC has actually taken a look at. and Right now joining us is Mariana Spring, disinformation and social media correspondent for the BBC. Mariana, thank you for being here.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So what do we know about the influence of TikTok on antisocial behavior?
2: So this investigation that I've worked on um, revealed how TikTok is driving online frenzies that then encourage antisocial behavior in the real world. Um, And former employees I've spoken to have said that the issue just isn't being tackled for fear of slowing the growth of the social media app business. And these frenzies, which we're defining as uh, when TikTok drives disproportionate amounts of engagement to some topics, are evidenced by um, all kinds of stuff. Speaking to former employees, uh, speaking to people that use TikTok, speaking to creators, too, um, who uh, have grown huge followings or have, have racked up huge numbers of views on the platforms. Um, I think what's important is to understand why this is happening. So what the investigation found um, is that TikTok's algorithm and design means people are coming across videos that they just wouldn't normally be recommended. And that in turn is incentivizing them to do unusual things in their own videos on the platform. If you use TikTok, you might be aware of this, that often you'll be recommending content that you've just never seen before. And certainly it's not from your friends or followers. It's from anyone who uses the platform. And TikTok has previously distanced itself from outbreaks of disorder, including some looting that happened here in the UK and London, um, which politicians had blamed on uh, the Billion user app. But actually the BBC has identified four episodes in recent months where disproportionate engagement on TikTok was then connected to harmful behavior. So the first is this obsession with a murder case in Idaho in the USA that led to innocent people being falsely accused of murder. The second is a a police investigation that happened in the UK regarding uh, the disappearance of a woman called Nicola Bully. Um, uh, And there were lots of amateur sleuths that turned up at the scene. The third is some school protests involving vandalism that have spread across the UK. And the fourth is fanning the flames of riots in France which spread at an unusual intensity and to unexpected locations earlier in the summer.
1: So your investigation showed that like TikTok employees there are aware of what happens and they don't they don't feel the need to stop this?
2: So the former employees I spoke to both in the US and the UK told me that essentially limiting these frenzies of harmful content just isn't a priority for the social media company because it could slow down the app's meteoric growth. And they compare these frenzies to wildfires and describe them as dangerous because the app's audience can be especially young and impressionable. And I think what's important to understand here is that, is that the way that TikTok works, the way it encourages participation, the sheer number of videos you can consume, those are all of the things that make TikTok really, really popular um, and and essentially kind of much more addictive than some of the other platforms. Um, were TikTok to kind of get on top of these bad frenzies, um, it might mean limiting the good frenzies too, and it wouldn't be a very easy thing to do. And that was what I heard time and time again from people who had been on the inside watching this quite closely. And there was one... Um, Uh, former employee I spoke to who um, said to me that that the app uh, TikTok just grew so fast it couldn't possibly predict or keep up with every single way it was going to go. And in general, it just doesn't want to because they don't want to stand in the way of entertainment growing quickly on their platform. And getting on top of these frenzies would mean deprioritizing more content, meaning their content would reach fewer people. Reaching fewer people means fewer eyeballs, and it means you sell advertisements, you sell ads for less. Um, So ultimately, their view was that this was being driven by profit, and that was the priority. Um, Obviously, I put all of these allegations to TikTok, and TikTok told me that their platform reflects conversations happening up and down the country and in the media about stories and issues that matter to people. They said their recommendation system is designed to prioritize safety, suggesting a range of content, proactively interrupting repetitive patterns, and reducing the reach of videos containing unverified information. Their team of over 40,000 safety professionals works alongside technology to remove content that violates community guidelines prioritizing safety is not only the right thing to do it makes business sense
1: right but if people are not if this isn 't in their algorithm, if they have shown no interest in this and this stuff is showing up and then more and more of it is showing up how 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 is that okay i guess
2: um i, I well, exactly and I think that was the question for all of the users and the people who worked there that ultimately there 's this feeling that um Uh, You know, this is happening and unfolding in in real time and and the evidence is there to support that. Um, You know, if if you kind of um, the investigation is available to read online, but there's also a documentary which should be available to people outside of the UK very soon as well. It's an hour long. And throughout that, there are many examples of um, unverified information being promoted to users there are examples of um, the way that these frenzies unfold in real time and they are not being moderated or stopped or slowed down in that way and um, so ultimately it does make you ask really serious questions about when the next frenzy could happen and the, and the real impact that that could have on um, all kinds of people whether that's uh, younger people particularly teenagers who use the app or whether it's um police law enforcement teachers trying to get on top of these frenzies who are ultimately the people left to kind of tackle them as they unfold in real time. So is there control
1: of this, Marianne? I mean, you mentioned it, like TikTok just grew so large, so fast. Do they have any ability to control the type of content that's on that platform?
2: So what we do know um, from from TikTok's statement even to us and from speaking to TikTok is that they tell us that you know, they are able to not promote unverified information. They are able to deprioritize certain types of content. They moderate content in line with their community guidelines. So it seems that the tools, or at least they say the tools are there to be able to deal with this. And the problem is in lots of these situations, I think that they are unfolding in real time where No one's sure what's happened. I mean, particularly in terms of the murder cases I've spoken about or disappearances, often we don't have definitive answers about what's happened. And I think that this investigation shows how it's in those cases these frenzies really start to unfold because speculation becomes rife. It goes far beyond legitimate questions and becomes false accusations and everything else. But because there's not a clear answer at that time about who it was or what's really happened, it's allowed to proliferate in that way. And and the same can be said of, for example, school protests. You know, protests are um, a good thing in a democracy and something certainly that, that, um, uh, you know, students taking part in those is not a problem at all in itself. The issue is that the cumulative effect of these protests that become more violent and more extreme with users then able to post and share their own version to one-up each other and to be incentivized by the views and likes and validation that come with that. um, That's the problem. And so while TikTok points out to me that lots of... The school protests just show... uh, Uh, peaceful protest, Um, the teachers and and users I've spoken to describe the cumulative effects of those kinds of videos and the way that actually it's that content being recommended and rewarded that seems to be leading to the escalation and the bad behavior offline, um, rather than it just being individual pieces of content that that should and could be removed.
1: Oh, man, this is really good advice for parents this morning um, to keep an eye on what your kids are watching on TikTok. Mariana, thank you for your time. That's all right. Thank you so much for speaking to me. That's Mariana Spring. Mariana is the disinformation and social media correspondent for the BBC and has worked on this uh, big piece in investigation into the TikTok algorithm almost and how it can lead to these kind of online social frenzies and how the company doesn't really seem that interested in doing a whole lot about it. Now, she mentioned the Idaho case. A couple of the examples she gave, there were very kind of UK oriented because that's where she is. But the one in Idaho, which is close to us here, is I think the one that you'll be most familiar with. This is the case in Moscow, Idaho, where four students at the university there were killed in their home. And I think everybody knows this case. Everybody has read about it. But you also know that TikTok users kind of became obsessed with this particular case. And there were so many speculative theories about who did it, what was going on, that police really had to do their best to try to shut a lot of these down and just say, please don't do this. Uh, There were 2 billion views On TikTok, 2 billion with a B from November 2022 until August the following year, just based on that case alone, 2 billion. Meanwhile, over on YouTube, there were 80,000 views of videos pertaining to that story. So you can see how it was a bit of a feeding frenzy on that, right? Where it just turned, it snowballed and got bigger and bigger and bigger and really did hamper and interfere with the police investigation and. Also, really harmed some people who they were, these, these TikTokers were just kind of accusing of participating and do, having something to do with this murder, who ended up having nothing to do with it at all. So, there is a destructive side to this as well. Uh, it is a fascinating, actually, piece, though, uh, with the BBC. This is Mornings with Simi. Ah, uh, yes, it is Friday. That means it's time for us to check in with Rob Shaw here, the political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. Are you going to miss Macho Man?
3: I am going to miss Macho Man. I'll (laughs) play it at home alone, but it won't have quite the same ring.
1: I know. Also later in the morning, right? Because you're like, there's no way I'm getting up this early if I don't have to. Much later
3: in the morning. That's right. That's right.
1: Vaughn is back on Monday, but we've got Rob with us for another day to talk about. You've had a busy week because of the Union of BC municipalities, everything that's been going on. And today is the day that Premier David Eby speaks there, right?
3: That's right. It's his first speech to UBCM as premier. And, uh, you know, we were kind of waiting to see how he chooses to use it. Some premiers go big and they announce a bunch of stuff at uh, UBCM. Christy Clark did that once. It was the Massey Bridge. (laughs) It did not go over well. And uh, that was the end of that. Horgan didn't really do a lot of uh, big news announcements at UBCM. Gordon Campbell did them almost every year. So, We'll see what E.B. has to say in terms of kind of new things uh, for, for municipalities. He is doing a shorter speech than usual because he's inserted a question and answer period with the audience. Oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah. Well, he loves Q&As. So E.B. Uh, has been doing town halls where he likes to have a big crowd of people and they come up on the stage and they sit beside him and they ask him questions and he answers them and he kind of goes through the crowd—it's it's a politically like risky strategy in the sense because you can be confronted with things you may not know or people with questions you may not like. But he seems to enjoy that kind of lawyerly um, sort yeah. of like live moot debate, Uh and he inserts these Q and A's wherever he can. So, can't it's, it's it's kind of fun to watch them because. Uh, you get to you get to watch somebody else try to squeeze answers out of the premiers on uh, on things, you know, like people coming up, and uh, he offers very little new, but he explains fairly well what the government's doing, and uh, so they get to uh, be reporters for a brief period and try to pin the premier down on stuff and see how well it goes. So that that'll be the format uh, at UBCM today.
1: Okay, what do you think most of the questions will be about?
3: Well, I mean, the big sort of four of the week have been wildfires, uh, housing, of course, healthcare, and the decline there, and then decriminalization, which bleeds into sort of um, the public safety issue. So I think there'll be a lot of that. I'm sure some local questions, too. But I have listened to sort of what government officials have been saying about that, those big four topics all week. And um, I have not heard anything new from the government on on any of them it's more like watching their ministers sort of tread water on what they've already been doing. And so EB will have an opportunity to shed a bit more light on that, uh, on what is coming on housing. Cause there's a lot of stuff coming this fall. If he wants to talk about anything he's heard back already from that expert task force on wildfires, if he's even appointed people to it um, what we're doing on healthcare. I know Adrian Dix kind of, again, was treading water on that saying um, this might be the new normal, this kind of overwhelming uh, the patient capacity at healthcare facilities. Because I don't he think... talked
1: about the numbers too, Adrian Dix. Like, we're, the, the healthcare system is doing more surgeries than they have ever done before.
3: Yes, they are, which is good. But Adrian Dix is a master of numbers, right? And so those numbers true. are great. But then you go to the hospital and you're sitting there waiting for 12 hours. So that it doesn't reflect the reality on the ground of especially rural communities where your hospitals closed and you're driving hours and hours and hours because a handful of, uh, of health officials weren't there to, to open the facility. So like, I, I think it's going to be incumbent on the premier to have a bit more of a hope of a future for that than just kind of the new normal. Um, and then on decrim, that's all on uh, premier EB because he's the one who's slowly moving that file forward. And We talked about how there's a lot of dissatisfaction uh, from local officials on that open drug use issue and his 15 meter drug zone, uh, no drug use zone that he seems to have arbitrarily come up with. So lots of opportunities for the premier to explain in a better way where he's going without, you know, ministers being worried of ticking off the boss by spilling the beans. So we will see if he does that.
1: Rob, they, they had a vote yesterday. It got a really interesting debate going among some of the municipalities and the, uh, the the delegates there,
3: yeah, although I'm still rocking out from the Cars for Kids song that was playing during the commercial break there, but I will get back your into theme professional song. you know we played that mode.
1: We played that for you once as your theme song, and it was so insidious, I thought we can't do that again. <laughs>
3: That's fair enough. Play it for Vaughn and see what happens. I oh, think you've yeah. lost your mind. you will be like, what happened while well, I was gone? <laughs> Rob's broken the show. <laughs> That's true. Uh, All right. Let's yes, talk about, because okay. this
1: was about lifting the mandatory vaccine mandate for healthcare workers.
3: Yeah, which is a big issue because BC is the only province left in Canada that is refusing to let healthcare workers go back to work if they are unvaccinated. And in especially in smaller communities, this is a big debate because facilities can shut down, especially ERs with only one or two healthcare professionals who don't show up in, in key positions. And then people have to drive hours away. And so there was a big debate at UBCM about this and everyone had different opinions on it. Some felt and correctly, I think that this is outside of their uh, lane as municipal politicians and they should leave it up to the health professionals, but it does impact their communities and they do have to advocate for them. Others, you know, feel like, yeah, you should comply with the vaccine order if you work in the healthcare system, especially when you have vulnerable people uh, in the healthcare system who are being treated. And then others, you know, made a pretty convincing argument that not having a nurse in particular available because of the vaccine mandate in a small facility can put hundreds if not thousands of people at greater risk than COVID ever could because the facility is not open. And so that has been a debate for many months now, because the weird thing about this vaccine mandate is, although it made sense at the time, now to be fully vaccinated and considered fully vaccinated by the province, you only need the first two doses. Most of us have moved on to dose four and five. Uh, And so the fully vaccinated definition is like a year, two years out of of date. What is even the use of at this point? And so those questions were all batted around um, by different politicians. And one of the more, they they had to cut off speakers at a certain point because there's so many people who wanted to speak about the impact on their community.
1: Right. And so then how did the vote go?
3: Yeah, it passed. So like the vote is that they're not calling on government to, I guess the double negative, they are not calling on government to lift the mandatory vaccine. I was surprised by the result. Yeah, I think, you know, it depends on kind of where you live, right? In, in Metro Vancouver and in greater Victoria, you go to another facility if it's closed, but in rural BC, you have no choice and it's a much more acute issue. We don't really know, um, how many people, are still sitting on the sidelines. There was more than 2000 nurses uh, and healthcare professionals probably fired for refusing to get vaccinated ish, but there's only 650 uh, nurses union grievances still ongoing. So no one's really quite sure how many nurses, for example, would come back if we had, uh, if we lifted this mandate, you know, Adrian Dix, when he's asked about this says he doesn't see a problem because BC is hiring more nurses than Alberta is and therefore the vaccine mandate must not be a problem for recruitment and he doesn't see it changing but it's actually Dr. Bonnie Henry's call uh, and uh we there's a, a briefing next week I believe on kind of flu season and vaccines and masks in healthcare settings which we're expecting we're probably going to have to go back to mandatory masks in healthcare settings um, and that that question is going to come up about a: Does this vaccine mandate still make sense? And B: If you're going to keep it, should you require people to be up to date on their vaccines? And boy, that's going to be difficult because not all of us are up to date on our vaccines, and um, that's a quite a that's a big ask for healthcare uh, professionals, and you would see even more people probably fall out uh, as well. So. So it's a very fascinating topic that is kind of building to a head with flu season um, and next week.
1: It certainly. Is. It's interesting that some people were saying, "Well, it's not our area," but they vote on a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily their <laughs> area, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, that's the the great um, you know that's being in local government is sometimes you veer um, way out of your lane because you see the impact of it in your community, and it is not a decision of local government, nor should it be, but. UBCM is partly about showing the province through these motions and through these debates um, in a larger voice where they stand. And so if the government takes anything away from that vote, it should be that there are a lot of people in this province who want um, that mandate lifted to better the crumbling healthcare system. And while they may have supported it at the time and they may still even support it. The benefit of, of lifting it outweighs the harm in their minds of, of keeping it. So that's something government should keep an eye on because um, I think when they launch their vaccine booster campaign next week and their flu season campaign, they know and you and I know that every time there's a, another vaccine for COVID that comes out, there's fewer people getting it. And it's a diminishing returns thing. Now it's turning into sort of the flu vaccine. And Adrian Dixon tends to argue publicly that people should get their COVID vaccine, but it's it's just fewer people are. And does it make sense to require healthcare workers to do something that don't, that fewer and fewer people are actually doing? I I, I don't know. You, you can argue all sides of it, but uh, but for now. Until next week, anyways, it's uh, it's not changing.
1: Okay, so now that we move on from the UBCM after Premier Eby's speech today, when does the fall session of the legislature get underway?
3: Yeah, it's in a, not next week, but the week after that, and it will be a kind of an interesting one. Fall sessions sometimes aren't very busy, but this one has got a ton of stuff on the docket. There's emergency management legislation. There's um the the uh, sort of kind of uh, police legislation there's housing legislation on the missing middle and the housing affordability and short-term rentals and regulating that and all sorts of stuff so uh, one more week of kind of um the building being empty and then boom it'll be a very busy fall for the ndp government
1: all right you've got a lot to look forward to rob thank you
3: Thanks for having me on, Simi. It was fun.
1: Anytime. Anytime. You know that. It was fun. <laughs> You're not so bad. You're, right, You're good. Uh, it's okay. It's yeah, a solid 5 out of 10. Right? Not, not, not too shabby. It wasn't so hard getting up this early in the morning, was it?
3: No, it was great. It's a good an early start to the day. I'm off and well, ready Well, Vaughn, Vaughn thought you did a great job, by the way. Oh, okay, that's great. Because he was still uh, listening. Is... <laughs> He's this, Even on holidays, out even of the on, country, yes, he was He was yes. on the internet listening.
1: He yeah. was, because I was still getting emails from him talking about what the things that you were saying. So he was still listening. He listens everywhere. Sure. He's omnipresent. That's our Rob Palmer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that,
3: Rob. Take care, Simi.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to find out and talk about what is going on down in the United States over the past week. Reggie Giacchini joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Well, there you are so busy this week. I want to I want to start with the the story about Canada and the United States, the relationship to India. United States is in a bit of a tough spot here because they've been cultivating closer ties to India, haven't they?
4: Yeah, uh, absolutely. They're trying to to use India uh, in this kind of new burgeoning friendship as a bit of a counter to both Russia uh, and China. And now to have the United States not really put in the middle here, but trying to decide how to move forward with being critical of the allegations, uh, you know, when it comes to what happened in India, while at the same time, ensuring that they're standing alongside uh, a long standing partner being Canada. Um, this, this is a difficult and delicate that balance that, that the United States is kind of teetering on right now. Um, they're, they're expressing you know, concern for what happened, urging the Indian government to cooperate, uh, but, but they're not really going any further with any public comment.
1: Right. OK. And I have to ask you, though, like how how is this being played in the United States media, if at all?
4: Uh, not a lot. Uh, it, it's making some headlines. It's making, you know, further down in some of the network and cable newscasts. I thought it was interesting yesterday at the White House briefing, the National Security Advisor uh, was up giving a, a, a speech on Ukraine. And then when he took questions, the very first question asked and answered was, about uh, the situation involving Canada and India. So there are some journalists that are picking up on this, and the White House was, um, you know, forthcoming with what information they were willing to give out there. But beyond that, I mean, the fact the White House briefing is a big deal. But beyond that, uh, you know, it it, it falls further and further down the line, especially the further and further you get from the Canadian border.
1: Right, because I understand that the big story, you know, in the Capitol the past week has been whether or not the government's going to shut down.
4: Yeah, this is a huge deal right now. It's it's a threat that comes around every couple of months, but this time it's far more um, concerning. September 30th is the deadline here. Republicans have failed to pass several um, defense appropriations over the last week, signaling that there is no real uniformity within the party. Uh, and if they can't kind of put something together and hand it off to the Senate, which will ultimately fail anyways, because it's democratically controlled in the Senate, um, the purse strings are going to be pulled tight and the government's going to shut down on September 30th. It's going to lead to a potential blowback for Republicans in the election next year. But it has a global impact as well. If the U.S. government shuts down, training and weapons deliveries to Ukraine also will, will halt. So, you know, it's a domestic issue that will have a real impact Elsewhere in Eastern Europe,
1: ok. So I don't understand what the holdup is here because it feels like in the House of Representatives, the the House leader there, Kevin McCarthy, can't even seem to get his people together.
4: Yeah. So essentially what's happening here is they need to put together some form of, of big spending bill to get all 12 appropriation bills put together. They don't have the they don't have the votes within the party to be able to do that. So they're looking for a continuing resolution, basically keeping spending where it is passing a short term budget to allow the government to stay open. But there are hard right members of his party who are saying, look, we don't want certain things attached to this uh funding bill, including funding for Ukraine. They want that to be a standalone bill. And if that's attached to it, they're not going to vote for it. And if they're not there to vote for it, there isn't enough votes to pass it. So it's a question of do Democrats and moderate Republicans have to work together and you know potentially lead to internal bickering because of that? It's, it's a real problem here. But at the end of the day, the United States is running out of money and they could run out of money by next Saturday.
1: Right. OK, so they're about to run out of money, but they're still going full steam ahead with these impeachment hearings.
4: Absolutely, they are. Uh, And in fact, they're also trying to tie these things together by saying, look, the impeachment of Joe Biden is the more critical thing to be paying attention to, not the fact that the government is going to shut down. And at the same time, while they're going after impeaching President Biden, they're not actually providing any information. And the House didn't hold a vote on impeaching Joe Biden because they don't have the votes to impeach joe biden so they're just allowing the committees to carry out these investigations it shows how much of a disarray the republican party is in right now because they're moving forward with something that they believe happened 3400 days ago when joe biden was vice president and they're not actually bringing anything forward to show the american public again this could backfire on republicans if there is no there 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 are democrats who will seize on this and say look You guys wasted time, and they will pounce at the election next year.
1: Well, also, if this is what they're obsessed about, but at the meantime the government could shut down, this doesn't seem like it's going to be very good optics.
4: Well, obviously not. And and the second part of that, Simi, is if the government shuts down, they can't carry out any kind of impeachment hearings because they won't have the staff to be able to carry out the investigations <laughs> to be able make to any, look into it and any to issue any of the subpoenas here. Yeah. So ignoring one by focusing on the other eventually puts the, the Republican Party at a full stop.
1: OK, so let's just turn to some entertainment news here for a moment, because I want to ask you about the writer strike. That's a huge story in the United States, because it sounds like there's some progress being made uh, with the two sides. Just, uh, the California economy is taking a huge hit on this.
4: Yeah, look, the, I mean, the, the United States economy right now impacted by the UAW strike and the writer strike. The thing is, they met yesterday writers, uh, the union rather, and CEOs of the big networks and the streamers. It was long discussions that went well into the evening hours, but they didn't actually produce anything, meaning for now reality TV stays in the primetime schedule throughout the fall. There is some, you know, word that there may be, uh, you know, getting closer to some kind of deal or negotiation, but there's no timeline for when the next set of talks are going to happen. So, you know, writers are saying and actors are standing with the writers saying, look, we're going to continue to strike until something is met for us. But at the end of the day, it means that the fall schedule will continue to either air reruns or stuff from streaming networks because there's nothing to put on TV while the strike goes on.
1: Right. And it does seem like there was some movement this week, I guess, because this is normally when all the new shows would be coming back.
4: Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a Grey's Anatomy fan, and I haven't Reggie, been able to watch really? my Grey's Come on, Are you kidding me? Shh. I, I, I start something and I, I always I can't believe you it. said so I'm, that I'm, I'm, publicly. I'm pub- no shame. Radio. No shame. And, and I want it to come back. But, you know, also there are people who write these programs that say that they want their fair share when it comes to reruns and when it comes to these things going right. on to streaming services. So the public is standing by the writers. Problem is, you know, eventually someone will have to break. And it could be the public very soon.
1: Well, you confessed. I will say I'm a Law & Order fan. So I'm with you on missing your shows, for sure. Longstanding
4: shows, they, yes. they just kind of pull at the heart. You miss they them. They
1: really do. I really do miss that. Uh, thank you for that, Reggie. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, these are interesting times in federal politics. And this morning, there is new exclusive polling out about who would win In a federal election, if it were held today, this polling has been done exclusively for Global News by Ipsos, and the global CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Daryl Bricker, is with us now to break it all down for us. Good morning, Daryl.
5: Good morning, Simi.
1: All of a sudden, your job has gotten a lot more interesting with these uh, polling results, hasn't it?
5: Yeah, it certainly has. We haven't seen movement like this uh, since the last election campaign and quite frankly, uh, nobody had a lead this big, even in this last election campaign or even back to 2019. So this is a this is a lot of change.
1: OK, break it down for us. Who's in the lead here?
5: We've got the, uh, the conservatives at 39 and we've got the liberals at uh, 30. So the conservatives have a nine point lead, which is very significant. And uh, we have the NDP in third at 18. The NDP stuck exactly where they were in the last election.
1: Okay, so with a nine-point lead, what would that do for the Conservatives in an election?
5: Well, they're knocking on the door of a majority, um, I would say, with a nine-point lead. But the issue that they have seen is that they're doing great in Western Canada, but um, in Central Canada, they're not doing as well. So in the province of Ontario, they're tied with the Liberal Party, which means that at best they're going to split uh, seats in the the province. And in Quebec, they're still well behind both the Bloc 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 Québécois and the Liberals, and probably won't add very many seats at any at all in Quebec. So uh, it looks like it should be a majority at 39, but it's just not distributed in a really efficient way for the Conservatives.
1: We, this sounds like a lot like what we saw um, you know, around the Stephen Harper era before he got that majority in 2011.
5: Yeah, exactly the same problem. And it's something the Conservatives have struggled with since Brian Mulroney uh, in, in 1988 when they were, uh, won a significant number of seats in Ontario, but especially in the province of Quebec. So... Uh, you know, since particularly the formation of this new uh, Conservative party back in, uh, in the early 2000s, they've only really broken through significantly once, and that was uh, in 2011 where again uh, really won well in Western Canada. but we're able to break through in the province of Ontario by winning the Car key in the suburbs. And at this point they're knocking on the door of doing that, but they're not quite there yet.
1: So what other categories, Daryl, did you find interesting here? You also asked people what, who they preferred as a prime minister.
5: Yes, they, we, we did ask preferred prime minister. and Again, uh, Pierre Polyev has about a 10-point lead over, uh, over Justin Trudeau. The first time we've seen that since uh, even before the 2015 election, where another leader is that uh, much preferred over the prime minister. So the Liberal Party is really struggling, but in particular, Justin Trudeau as the prime minister of Canada is really struggling.
1: Interesting. So would you care? You characterize this as them kind of knocking on the door here, right? Like there is potential.
5: Yeah, there is. There are a couple of points away, I would say, uh, from really comfortably having a majority government if an election were held tomorrow. But the key is Ontario. Can they move ahead of the liberals? And at the moment, they haven't.
1: And so what is holding them back in Ontario then? I mean, they've got a conservative government in Ontario then that is not incredibly popular. Is that something that's affecting this number, do you think?
5: Well, there might be some cross brand conservative uh, effect here, but also uh, I think that uh, the conservatives have not just struggled uh, uh, to gain a lead in Ontario um, uh, uh, under Pierre Polyev. They've struggled since 2011 to be able to do that. So, um, there's a lot of convincing left to do, I would say, and I think one of the things that we're going to see a lot of is Pierre Polyev showing up in those suburbs.
1: Interesting. So would you say Ontario and Quebec are, are the battleground here?
5: Not so much for the Conservatives. The Bloc Québécois is doing the Conservatives' work in Quebec, so they're preventing the Liberals from forming a strong base in Quebec, because they've got about a 10-point lead in Quebec over, over the Liberal Party, it, It's the Bloc. Uh, so the real question comes down to Ontario. So if I was uh, trying to handicap what's going to happen in the next election, which you know, is a, a while away, I'd be very closely looking to see if the Tories can, can, uh, can move ahead in Ontario. And if they do, and the numbers stay around 37, 38, 39, that's a majority.
1: And we didn't mention Atlantic Canada. Anything interesting there? Uh,
5: the Conservatives are ahead there. Uh, we haven't seen that very recently, but very, very close to the Liberals, I would say, they're tied. Actually, where you are today, Sumi, is the most competitive part of the country. You've got three parties all within about five points of each other. Uh, so B.C. is going to play a very big role in the next
1: election campaign. And,
5: you know, quite frankly, since the turn of the millennium, the turn of the century, B.C. has become much more important in
1: Canadian politics than it used to be. Would you say that B.C. is a toss-up right now?
5: It really is. We have the Conservatives ahead of the Liberals by five, but the NDP and the Liberals are tied at 30. So it's 35 for the Conservatives, 30 and 30 for the Liberals and the NDP. And that's all probably within the margin of error of a tie.
1: Right. So if there's two provinces, you would you say that there's like a real battleground, then it would be Ontario and B.C.?
5: That, those would be the two places to watch, I would say, the most closely. I, I would say that the distribution of the vote in in um, in uh, British Columbia, works a bit more efficiently for the for the, uh, for the uh, Conservatives. Ontario is the real place that they really have to uh, establish a, a, a significant gap with the Liberal Party. It looks like you know good progress so far in uh, in, in British Columbia, but uh, Ontario is uh, the, the place that they really have to start moving.
1: Interesting times, Daryl. Thank you. My pleasure. That is Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, talking about their latest polling results. Really interesting, exclusive polling done for Global News that shows that, you know, BC is right in the heart of this. It's pretty much a three-way tie when it comes to polling here in our province between the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the NDP, meaning that BC will definitely be... A battleground in the next federal election, whenever that may be. I remember two years ago, uh, because it was just about exactly two years ago that we had our last federal election that resulted in a minority government for the Liberals. And there was talk that, oh, well, you know, maybe this government will last two years. And that hasn't been the case. They have formed that partnership with the federal NDP to keep them in power. And now it's looking like there's no rush for an election. Certainly not with these numbers, right? Uh, So it could be a while before we see that. But still, very interesting numbers. This is Mornings with Simi. Things remain tense between Canada and India. This is days of tit-for-tat diplomatic measures that we've seen after Prime Minister Trudeau accused the Indian government of being involved in the murder of Hardeep Singh Najars, a prominent Sikh activist. It has, in many ways, put Canada on the hot seat, having to justify why it went public with this information and then uh, to demonstrate what proof it has. And then, of course, there is the obvious big question here, too. If this is true, what do we do? I mean, what happens to the relationship between India and Canada if it turns out India did play a role in this? That's the question that our next guest tries to answer in his latest column for the Global Mail newspaper. Gary Mason, national affairs columnist, joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Simi. Now, your latest column really does kind of lay this all out. How tough of a spot do you think Canada is in right now?
6: Oh, I think it's in a a terrible spot, really. it's, you know, it's it's made a very, very serious allegation against a, uh, against a, a, one of the most powerful countries in the world. And, uh, you know, it, I, the question becomes, I mean, if it's if the allegation is proven true, what does Canada, uh, a middle power that really depends on a country like India for its for trade, Um, What does it do about it? And uh, um, the answer that I came up with is not not a heck of a lot. And uh, I don't think I don't see many of our allies uh, jumping to uh, our side and and doing anything radical in terms of putting pressure on India or penalizing India in any way for, you know, for an extra judicial killing, if that's what it's determined to ha- happened here.
1: Okay, let's break down your thoughts on this a little bit more then. If it, it is not a lot, why do you think that?
6: I'm sorry? If, if, well,
1: like, if, Why do you think there wouldn't be a not a lot that would happen if it turns out India did do this? Why would Canada be well, on its own, do you think?
6: Well, okay. I mean, I, I, first of all, I, I just don't think that the federal government is going to you know, jeopardize billions of dollars in trade Uh, with that country over, over the killing of one of our citizens. I think, you know, there might be other avenues that Canada would, would take, Uh, you know, you know, maybe call it, you know, call home their diplomats. Um, You know, I, I, I brought up the prospect of severing diplomatic relations with India. I I don't even see that happening to be quite honest with you. It's just, it's just that we depend so much on India. I just don't think that the prime minister would, would put that sort of, the economic ties with that country at risk over, over this matter. I think that there would, there, there might be other things, the foreign agent registry is something that they've been talking about. Maybe that's something, but you know, you look, I brought, brought up in the column, Simi, you know, the, the two Michaels, you know, that yes. they were, they were ki- kidnapped by China, um, over retaliation for uh, Canada, you know, um, detaining Ming-Zhu on behalf of the Americans and uh, who had an extradition request out, they, they jailed two innocent Canadians for nearly three years. And the federal government, you know, said that it was going to do something about this kind of coercive diplomacy and this was outrageous and blah, 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 blah. And this went on for, you know, three years. But what was the end result to me? Like, what what price did China pay for for that? Absolutely nothing. We didn't even call, we didn't even, you know, send home any of their diplomats over the matter. So, uh, I mean, I, I understand that this is a little bit more serious when you're talking about the murder of a Canadian citizen. But, I mean, you know, China got away with something pretty egregious itself. And if anything, it gave China the opportunity to demonstrate to the world that, you know, if you cross us, we will, we will kidnap your citizens and keep them until we get our way. So, I mean, that's just one example. I've, I've raised others in, in, in well, the piece as well. You
1: use the great example, I think, of, of Saudi Arabia, of, of some uh, of the things that Saudi Arabia has been accused of, and yet it doesn't seem to affect Saudi Arabia at all on the world stage.
6: Yeah, I mean, we all remember uh, being horrified by the, uh, the murder and dismemberment of Washington Post journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And at the time, uh, Joe Biden was running for, you know, president of the United States. And he said, if elected, he was going to make uh, Saudi Arabia and, and, and its crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, per, a global pariahs. Well, two years later, as U.S. president, there was Joe Biden in Saudi Arabia, fist bumping with, with the same, you know, crown prince and talking, you know, global energy security. and And the reality is, that trumps those kind of, you know, matters <laughs> like the, the the killing of a of a in, innocent person. I mean, it, it's kind of disgusting to even imagine that. But, but that's just that's just the the real politic of, of of today's world.
1: Right. So you think that we should remember all of that when we're getting upset and people are getting outraged over this?
6: No, I, I mean, I I still think we need to get up, upset and outraged over it. I mean, you can't just simply look at this and, and and say, well, you know, shrug oh, yeah. your shoulders. I mean, y- y- you can't. I mean, I, I understand that. But uh, all I'm saying is, you know, I think Canadians need to be realistic about, um, you know, what is what consequences India is going to have to pay here. And I think we also have to be realistic about uh, the notion that other countries are allies are going to jump in here and, you know, go along with economic sanctions to penalize India on Canada's behalf. I just I just don't see that happening. I'm not saying for a second that we shouldn't be outraged and angry and, uh, you know, maybe do something on a diplomatic scale. But I think we need to be realistic about what, what, you know, what could ultimately happen here, what ultimate price India might have to pay if it's proven that they did play a role in all this.
1: Right. So uh, the most that we could hope to do here is somehow perhaps damage India's reputation or damage like China's reputation in situations like this. We're not really going to cause any economic pain.
6: I don't think so. I don't I don't see it. I mean, I guess we could we could, you know, stop allowing, uh, you know, students from India to come and study in Canada. I mean, we could we, we could curtail issuing visas. Um, I mean, I suppose those are avenues that the country could take. But you know, the other thing, Simi, is you know, in a couple of years, so let's say we take some actions like that. Let's say we we stopped issuing visas to uh, Indian nationals who want to come to Canada uh, as a as a penalty. Well, and then the Conservatives get into power in two years. Well, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you right now that they would reverse that decision because. Uh, the conservative government loves the modi modi government and i i i think that they would say that that was not in canada's interest to, to do that so um any any actions that the trudeau government might take could be very short lived uh you know if the conservatives take power in two years time it's
1: kind of depressing though isn't it gary to think about that very, that canada's options it, are very limited here
6: it's it, very limited uh, uh, absolutely but you know at the same time i i cited the fact that you know Iran has just been made chair of a united nations uh uh human res- you know humanity uh panel i mean this is one of the you know worst regimes you know in in the world and and they've been given this you know special position at the u n and it's just like oh my god like what is going on in this world of ours it's just it, it's depressing. I think yeah, that, you, you. You, yes. you hit it on the on the, on the on the head right there.
1: It really is. But Gary, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. We appreciate your time.
6: Okay, Sammy, as always, I enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you great
1: much. column. That is Gary Mason, national affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. It is depressing, but unfortunately, it's sad but true that Canada's options are very limited. And it's not just our options. As Gary points out, just take a look at what's happening on the world stage. Anybody who is outraged, even if the United States is outraged over something Saudi Arabia does or China does, the options because of the economics and the ties and everything always remain quite limited, don't they? That is the frustrating part about all of this.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, if you are looking for something to do in the next couple of weeks, allow me to direct you to the Richmond Art Gallery, where they have a very cool new exhibition going on right up until November the 5th. It's quite the look at the work of Sonia Allers, who is a visual artist and writer from Victoria. And it's also quite the look at the 1990s. We wanted to talk more about it. So Sonia Allers is with us now. Good morning good morning what 's it like to see all your work like this in one place i 've always wondered that for artists and exhibits oh
0: oh boy uh, well it 's a thirty year survey of my work and to be honest, sitting or standing in the gallery is actually quite emotional, just being amongst all the work and watching people go through the work is is quite something
1: and what kind of emotions do you think it evokes in people? to see your work. And because there's, there's quite a nod to the 1990s here too, right?
0: Correct. Yes. Um, well, there's all these binders, three ring binders that are on display and they're full of clear sleeves that hold my archive. So there's lots of images and text and peop- it's almost like rifling through my brain. Like it's all these binders are there to hold my thoughts and ideas over the decades. Sonia, and that's intimate.
1: You want people yes, to do this? <laughs> I
0: know. It's quite shocking. It's, I have to kind of make it comedy. It's like, this is hilarious to me in a lot of ways. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah.
1: well, what inspired it? What made you want to do this?
0: Uh, well, I've been working with the curator, Godfrey Leung, for about five years now. We actually met in 1999 as pen pals. So we've been in touch all, throughout the decades. And now we're working together. And he's an amazing curator. So that came about I think he did an amazing job of of formatting the work because my work is I mean it's quite scattered it's all over the place but he made it orderly and very neat and tidy in the in the gallery if that makes sense too
1: right because you have to have people have to be able to process it right of course and there is a lot of work in the show like it's
0: quite I'm getting feedback saying it's a bit overwhelming but oh really a little bit. I mean, it's very formal and, I, and, and, like I said, tidy, but there is a lot of work in the show.
1: So why the focus, Sonia, on the 1990s? Um, well, I grew up, I started making,
0: oh, that's actually when I really started making my art in the, in the early to mid-90s. I started making zines, which are small, photocopied uh, little booklets that I would make at my friend's office. So we'd sneak in after hours and make these little books. And then I started to distribute them. And that's how I met the curator, was through a network of pen pals and just trying to create a network pre-internet. So that's what I was doing back then. And it it evolved. It eventually became a published book. And then I started doing more visual art and installation work within galleries. So it's just been an amazing, interesting snowball over over the years. And the 90s, it just had such an impact. And I have to say, sometimes I wish I was back in the 90s.
1: What? Everything. You're the only one. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, with everything going on in the news lately, it's like, hmm, maybe that was a better time. I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> OK, that's so interesting. So it's almost like a bit of a retrospective for you, too, right? Like, was it a simpler time, do you think?
0: Uh, I wonder. I mean... I would not want to live, relive my 20s again, but the 90s, there I, there is a nostalgia for it now, absolutely. And a lot of like Gen Z kids and people are, they just want that time period. They're just the romance, they've romanticized it.
1: Oh well, I think that's because I remember it like it was yesterday, <laughs> so <laughs> so do I feel I, like, absolutely right. And it's yes. You think okay, people really want to go back to that? Oh, okay, now I, I notice it. <laughs> it also says that you you quit art for a time too. What happened? Oh, I left Vancouver
0: of mid about two thousand seven because of a breakup and the housing situation. So as an artist, it was just challenging to find housing, affordable housing. So I actually decided to move to the Yukon and just take a break from art and, and, and being in public. And that actually was incredibly restorative. And my time up in the Yukon was very fruitful. And it was like an act of self preservation, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And you produced art during that time too, that's on display, isn't it? I do. I did. Yes. And
0: um, yeah, actually not, I, not only did I not quit art, I feel as though it, it saved my career.
1: Really, why? I was,
0: I, I was really struggling in Vancouver. There's a lot of competition and, and up in the Yukon, there was, it was, it's, it's so much more relaxed and you know, about Yukon time, there's a, this thing called Yukon time. Everyone's late for everything. <laughs> it's just very relaxed and comfortable and I, I was able to keep making art as a result.
1: What is it that continues to inspire you? Oh, gee. Uh, well, pop culture. I,
0: I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot. I, I watch lots of TV and film. I'm very interested in what's going on in popular culture. And I kind of work like a filter system Processing that information and that comes out in my books. And because I do lots of writing and and collage work, so I like to make sense of what I'm taking in throughout the day.
1: So you kind of it's almost like you gather all this information into your brain and then you kind of see what filters out in inspiration,
0: exactly. And so I talked earlier about these three ring binders that are in the show that are that the viewer is allowed to leaf through like I said earlier it's like going through my brain and my my diary in a way
1: so you don't go stand in the gallery then do you like to see what people's reactions are I would love to I'm in Victoria
0: I'm in Victoria yeah honestly I've been doing this for so long now that I'm at a place where I can step outside of myself and just and not take it personally I just it took a very long time to get to this point point. But now I'm actually at that point.
1: Is there something inspiring about this exhibit for you as well? Like when you see what's happening and like, how does it make you feel to put yourself out there like that?
0: Hmm. Um, I mean, I did say earlier, it's like, it is very emotional. There have been times where I almost started to weep. But during the opening, it was very, it was overwhelming. It was actually a, like a mob scene, in my opinion. There were so many people there and so many people from my past, and I don't know, it just, it's, yeah, you do feel vulnerable, but you have to get mm-hmm. over that, and also just working with the curator together, it, it's a collaboration, so it becomes something outside of me, it becomes something that's more out in the world, that's, that, that it belongs, it takes on a life of its own, so I can separate myself from that.
1: And what do you hope people take away from this, from seeing really the inside of your brain like this? Oh, well, honestly, I just hope that people,
0: I I know that some people have seen the show and have been inspired to go out and, co- like, not copy, but sort of emulate some of my organizational ideas because there is actually a section in the gallery with um, pages of one of my books that are on display on the wall, and it shows actually how I how I put together a book, like how I build a book. So there's lots of kind of secrets and little giveaways in the space that I hope to inspire the viewer to perhaps take those ideas and, and use them for their own work. You know what I'm saying? Like, why don't you go and do like, start your own, make your own book and do it your way, like figure out a way to do it.
1: And if we think back to that time too, just think back, give yourself a moment, give yourself that space. Oh, yeah,
0: that's beautiful. I love that.
1: Oh, well, you can have that. You can keep that. Okay. Uh, Son- can I have that? Yeah, you <laughs> You can have that. Sonia, thank you so much for talking to us about your work this morning. Oh,
0: you're so welcome. Thanks for having me.